having me. I don't really have any interest in sharing any more about any of that stuff. <laughs> but, but I would love to get to know you after the service. That would be awesome if you're sticking around a bit. Uh, that would be a lot of fun. So thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here and great to hang out with some of my ecclesial siblings uh, here across town. The, the passage that I chose is an interesting one, and we will probably have to build a little bit of scaffolding to get to it. It's, it's kind of like if, if you know, uh, if you're a Tolkien fan and you, you know the Cimmerillion, there are a lot of names and places and dates and stuff like that that, that can pass by pretty quickly. And uh, while many of you are probably very Old Testament aware, this is a passage that we don't tend to hit a lot. I, I was uh, an organic cattle farmer some years ago, what in Canada you would just call a cattle farmer, I guess. But, uh, and uh, I was leading Sunday school class, and I did a fair amount of work in the Old Testament. And uh, one of the passages, or one of the sections that I really loved was uh, Joshua. I was studying the conquest, what it meant both at the time of Israel and what it means uh, for us as Christ has conquered uh, sin and death. And by the way, just to proviso, I, I have no intention in going through the front side or back door to connect what I'm talking about tonight with what's going on in the Middle East right now. I have no intention of doing that, so don't take that as a, uh, you know, don't see me trying to read into current events or anything like that with what we're preaching. We're just in a passage that happens to be talking about what's going on in Israel. Uh, but just briefly, uh, for if there are any of you who are relatively new to church, relatively new to the Scriptures, uh, there is this moment in uh, Israel's history where they were enslaved for 430 years by Egypt. Uh, after that time, when God led them out of slavery, they went into the wilderness, and they went to the wilderness, and they had to stay there for 40 years because of their faithlessness. Now, uh, <clears throat> Moses was the, was the one who was leading them there, and as Moses was leading them, uh, he didn't get to enter into a land that had been promised to them many years even before the enslavement. Uh, it was called the promised land, and they were going to go into that land. It was a land that was promised that was going to be flowing with milk and honey after those long centuries of enslavement and then uh, several decades of wilderness wandering. So it was, it was uh, certainly a hopeful thing that they wanted to be there, but Moses didn't get to go either because of his faithful, faithlessness. However, Joshua... Uh, was chosen by the Lord to take everyone over to the promised land from uh, the, the wilderness wanderings to the east of the Jordan River. Uh, he was both, in one sense, prime minister and general. He was uh, one who led the entire nation over there. But before we get to any more scaffold building or reviewing, why don't we read the passage at hand. If you would, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. I'm reading from Joshua, chapter 10, verses 1 through 16, 15. This is the Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As soon as Adoni Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction doing to Ai and its king, as he had done to Jericho and its king, and now the inhabitants of Gibeon had peace, had peace with Israel and were among them. He feared greatly, because Gibeon was a great city, 
like one of the royal cities. And because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were warriors, so Adonizedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Jarmuth, of Japhia, king of Lachish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up! Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with all the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. And the man of Gibeon, this is verse 6, sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So in verse 7, Joshua went up from Gilgal. He and all the people people of war with him and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them. For I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon, and chased them away by the ascent of Beth Horon, and struck them as far as uh, Azekah and Machedah. Verse 11, And they they fled before Israel while they were going down uh, the ascent, of Beth Haron, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave uh, the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ihalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Yashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Verse 15, so Joshua returned, and Israel, all Israel with him, to the camp at Gilgal. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we ask that you would be with us today, tonight, in, in this reading of your word. Thank you, Father, that it is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even unto the dividing asunder of flesh and marrow, uh, It is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. We ask that you would allow it to cut into us in a good way, Lord. We ask that it would discern us, that it would know us, Lord, and that you would know us, Father. And we ask that we would understand you better because we have been in your word, Lord. Help us to be changed. Help us to be transformed by the renewing of your minds, not by the the fleshiness that we carry with us, Lord. We pray that you would uh, not let the the words of the speaker uh, that are 
sinful, go, go forward because the sins of the speaker are many, Lord, but you are good and your word is good. And we pray that your word would truly go forth. And we pray this in Jesus' mighty and powerful name. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. So we've gone from the Israelites wanting to go into the promised land all the way up to this moment where we are right now with Gilgal. If you'll remember the Old Testament reading, we're going to review that just a little bit so that we can help remember. But just uh, because of current events, a lot of you are probably way more familiar with the geography of that area right now. But think of my fist as the uh, Sea of Galilee. Forgive all these things. These are because I went swimming with my son this summer. Um, My fist is the Sea of Galilee. My arm is the uh, River Jordan. And down here is the Dead Sea. Right over here is Jerusalem. I guess I could have drawn a map or done something like that. But anyway, everyone's over here to the east of the Jordan at this point, right? And they're wanting to come in. Uh, and we find them moving in, or they've already moved in, because in some chapters prior in Joshua, they have already fit or won the battle of Jericho, and the walls came tumbling down. You you remember what happened in Jericho when it was definitely a move of God, because uh, they did things that were uh, not normal warfare. They did not have an Israeli ballistics uh, warehouse where they went and got incredible cannons that blew down the walls. They simply walked around the walls and blew horns and the walls came down. It was clearly a move of God. Then Ai, another very large city, is taken down. And we hear about that in our passage tonight. But uh, when we get to the beginning of chapter 10, what we see is this moment where the Gibeonites, who are also Hivites, are afraid. Why are they afraid, and why are they with Israel? Well, we heard about that a little bit back in chapter 9. It's a a really weird circumstance that would put the the, uh, Gibeonites with the Israelites because they weren't really supposed to be. Let's rewind again to chapter 9. So in chapter 9, what happens is you have all these, uh, the Gibeonites who have heard of what happened to uh, Jericho, what happened to AI. And they said, we don't want that to happen to us. And so they start developing a little plan. And when we practice to deceive, we know what happens. And they started weaving a web of deception to try to uh, trick the Israelites into some kind of peace accord, into some kind of peace agreement. They wanted to be connected to them because they knew that they were powerful. They may have missed who God really was. They may have worshipped idols. But one thing they knew was that God's powerful, we want to be a part of it. And so what was their deception? Their deception was, it was kind of, it was, they, they said, hey, we're going to pretend to be really poor and really weak and go before the, uh, the, the Israelites. And really, I mean, later on, we find out that the Gibeonites were almost like, you know, maybe many Spartans. They were uh, a, a tribe of, uh, warriors. All the men, it said, were fighting men. Every man that was a Gibeonite was a warrior. Yet, they knew that they needed to do something. So, they get this scheme and they say, uh, we're going to go before the 
ministry of foreign affairs of Israel, and we're going to tell them, hey guys, would you make a pact with us? And what do they do? They wear the most threadbare, tattered clothing they can, and they come before the Israelites and say, oh, woe is me. You don't know how far we've traveled. It's been so far. Look at our donkeys. They're tired. They can't even walk anymore. Look at our bread. It's moldy and hard and horrible. Look at, look at our wineskins. They're, they're spewing out wine because we've traveled so far. And this deception that they have is because they know that they're not going to be able to get a, uh, a legitimate uh, peace accord with the Israelites if they, go, if they walk in through the front door because Israelites were ex- explicitly told don't go into this new land making peace accords. They were, they were told to basically take it over. If you want to look back to Genesis 15, just so you know that this is not some kind of wanton aggression that they are expressing here, there is a covenant made with Abraham, or Abram in this case, before he is called Abram, Abraham uh, in Genesis 15 and verse 13. It says, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. And that's the, the enslavement. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, that's Egypt, and afterward they shall come out with, a great, with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your, into your father's peace, you shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquities of the Amorites is not yet complete. The Amorites, who are they? The Amorites are one of those large coalitions of groups that are part of the land that has been promised. And they have not, in generation after generation after generation, set their idols down. And they had opportunities to do it. And so think of it in terms of maybe the flood. There were people who had, the the entire world, except for a family, had not set their idols down. Think of it in terms of Sodom and Gomorrah. It was a sad thing. It's something that we should carry with heaviness, with weightiness, that idols were not set down. The idols were not set down, and the, pe- the people of Israel were told to go into Israel and take uh, possession of that which the Amorites had. And so, at the beginning of chapter 10, remember the Gibeonites are the people who have made a pact with the Israelites at this point. Even though the Israelites should not have done it, they did it anyway. So remember, they're going there in their tattered clothes, the Gibeonites, in their tattered clothes before uh, the Israelites. And the Israelites, Joshua and the crew, say, you know, well, where are you from again? They say, oh, a far, 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 far land. And then, without seeking the counsel of the Lord, they made a pact. They made a covenant, thinking this will be an easy covenant It'll be an easy connection with a group of people that won't be any harm to us. It'll be fine. And they're from a far-off land. If they had sought the counsel of the Lord, maybe they would have known that they, they weren't supposed to make that particular covenant. But they made it anyway. And because they made that covenant in the name of the Lord, 
They had to keep it. And so you get to chapter uh, 10, where uh, Adoni Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and devoted it to destruction. And so he, he is, he is uh, the king of Jerusalem at the time, and these are part of the Amorites. He heard what the Jerusalem, uh, what uh, sorry, the Israelites had done to Ai. He had learned what they did to Jericho, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel, and they were among him. And so he feared now Gibeon because he thought Gibeon was going to come down on him. And so what does he do? He gathers up the four other Ammonite tribes and says. Let's go against Gibeon. We have to take these guys out before they take us out by some kind, you know, by the coalition that they've made with uh, the Israelites. And so, Gibeon, they hear the imperial march coming down the pike. It's the bad guys. They're coming. Watch out. And as they're coming. They say in verse 6, the many men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp of Gilgal saying, don't relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly. Basically they're saying, help! Here come five different tribes against us. Even though we're a tribe of warriors, we're not going to make it against these guys. And so Joshua and the Israelites do come up and they are... uh, encouraged and joined by the Lord. So Joshua went up in verse 7 from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him and all the mighty men of valor. Verse 8, And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. And this is a a theme that we see in other places. We saw it back in Jericho. We saw it in Ai. And in a sense, it is a beautiful thing to see them coming out of the wilderness and moving into the promised land and being joined by God in the midst of it. Although there is, you know, I mean, they would have preferred not to have had to done this probably, except for, that's where the Gibeonite reflux comes in. It's because they made this deal they shouldn't have made because they didn't seek the Lord when they were making the deal. But nonetheless... God takes a, a people who are not completely faithful and not completely uh, wise in what they had done and the deal-making they had done, and He is with them. He stays with them. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing to see. Uh, and as they, led, they were led before Israel, you could see that God is doing the power. And He brings this hailstorm that, that does more damage than even the swords of Israel. Now, uh, when we go into battle, when these guys are going into battle, the Gibeonites, they are making the assumption that the Israelites are with them and God is with them. And he is, but he is doing it for the Israelites who, have, who, who are the apple of his eye. They're the, they're the ones that he has chosen to uh, express his, his, uh, his name to the entire world. And they're a little bit, you would, th- you would think that they're, they're claiming now God is on our side. And 
You know, that's one of the things that happens often in war. Uh, I, I don't know if the lore has made it up here or not, but in, in the American Civil War, uh, there was this thing that Abraham Lincoln, uh, one, uh, an American president, set, president said, uh, I don't know if God is on our side, but we, the question is, should we be on God's side? Because both sides were claiming, God is on our side, God is on our side. In the midst of struggle, in the midst of whatever it is that we run into in life, we should be asking certainly the question, are we on God's side? Meaning, are we pursuing God in the midst of that rather than assuming that He is sanctioning all of the things that we are doing, which may be laden with poor peace treaties and pacts taken where we didn't seek the, the will of God. Something like that, where we were used, acting out of the flesh rather than acting out of uh, the Spirit. When you get to 10, uh, chapter 10, verses 6 through 11, you see that God is saying, uh, I will always be with you, uh, no matter what you do. And then we've, we see this presence that He has with, with His people in the midst of battle that is incredible. It's, it's an extra natural, it's a supernatural thing. Um, I'm not going to try to explain through, through natural means what the, the, the whole sun standing still thing meant. Uh, I, don't, I don't think it begs that. I don't think we need to worry about heliocentric versus, uh, you know, teleocentric universe or solar system or whatever, anything like that. I think we need to just say what God did was He gave His people what they needed. They need, the time that they needed to do the thing that He was calling them to do. He gave them a blessing. He gave them a blessing in the midst of uh, something that they had not even uh, really earned well because they had faithlessly made this pact with the Gibeonites beforehand. So where does that hit us as we continue to make uh, daily decisions that are against the will of God, uh, that are fleshly decisions, that are decisions that put us at odds with Him, that, that damage our sanctification? Um, we find ourselves in tension with God. Now, I'm, uh, there may be someone who talked about this before in, in church history, but I think specifically of, of Martin Luther who mentioned uh, the idea of tentatio or uh, struggle, anfektung, trials. He was uh, talking about how uh, tentatio... Meditatio and oratio were three great ways to become a theologian. You have struggles, you pray, and you meditate on the Word of God. But particularly this idea of struggle is something that is so powerful because we, we go through it and we, we ha- we're, we're put in a position of deciding, do I go with the flesh or do I go with the Spirit? When we're in these struggling moments. And it's so good in the midst of that to know that we have a God who loves us, even when we goof it up. But we're still going to struggle, right? We're still going to have this, this, this pull that exists between, uh, inside, our, inside our souls that, that is between what we know to be right, maybe where the Spirit is leading us, and then a fleshly direction where we could make pacts without seeking uh, the will of God. So... Uh, I want to look in this, this uh, part of the passage again where the sun is standing still. 
Verse 12, at that time Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said uh, in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon. Moon, uh, in the valley of Ihalon. And the sun did stand still and the moon stopped. Now, look, again, I, I, I don't know if this is the way that God is going to intervene in our lives, but it just shows that God does intervene in our lives. The passage itself says that there's, there's a moment here where, uh, the, 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 uh, where a, a man asks God to do something that's never been done before or since. So it's a unique moment, there's no doubt, but it still reflects the character of a God who loves us in the midst of our own struggle and our own foolish decisions and our own goof-ups. That's, that's the kind of God we want to know. It reminds me of the moment in, in Matthew 4 where Jesus is being tempted by the tempter after he's gone through the 40 days of fasting and prayer. Remember, he gets baptized by John the Baptist, and then the next thing he does is he goes through the 40 days of fasting and prayer, and then the temptation of the tempter, and then he enters into his public ministry. I'm reminded of it, uh, with this passage because Jesus was able to perfectly do something. He was able to perfectly resist the tempter. What was the first thing that the tempter came to him with after Jesus had gone through this struggle? And it was a real struggle. Don't forget that Jesus entered this earthly body of his so that he could walk through this with us. We don't need to give in to the temptation to believe that, well, he was just deity, and because he was deity, it was easier for Jesus. It was pretty easy for Jesus. No, he knows our temptations. He had a humanity to him, even though he was 100% man and 100% uh, God. He was, still, uh, he was still man, and he could feel that, that desire to go bink and turn the rock into bread when the tempter came along. Uh, I think that often we do think, well, that was easy for Jesus again because that was, e- that was Jesus. But no, he felt that temptation. And when we feel the temptation to just make the bread, make the pact, make the easy decision, make the quick decision, why, why be dependent on the Father in that moment? Because, hey, I live a relatively godly life. I just go ahead with the things that... It seems that there's something that the Spirit is doing to call us closer to God in the middle of temptation, in the middle of the struggle, in the middle of the, the, the pull back and forth, the, the trial that's there. How is it that He is calling us to have a more Christ-like response, a more Christ-like obedience? True. We're not going to be Jesus. He has... No ability to sin, but at the same time, he did go through the temptations. He does feel what we feel. He walked among us. He was Emmanuel. He was love in our presence. We feel it every day. We feel the struggle every day from foolish things we've done. Foolish things we do. And as we do that, can we depend upon a Holy Spirit that guides us 
closer to, closer to obedience, closer to honoring God, closer, closer to doing that thing which we, we know we should do by His grace, not so we can climb the ladder to Jesus, but because He's called us to it. And it glorifies Him. It lifts up His name when we do it. Is there anything that, that we see in, in Jesus in that moment that brings us closer to Him? I, I hope so. I hope so. Um, I need that, and I'm praying that for myself. Um, this week, I would pray that we would all um, be able to see that, yeah, there are struggles that are out there, if you, if, you, if you think back, if you happen to be thinking this week of this crazy passage that we went through where these people went through deep, deep struggle because of a, a situation that was partially brought on by themselves and that God was still with them. Again, let's, do this one, let's look at this one verse again. This is so powerful. In uh, chapter 10, verse 14 of Joshua. There's been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man and listened to this part. For the Lord fought for Israel. Isn't that beautiful? For the Lord fought for Israel. God loves His children. No matter what kind of numbskullery we, we pull off, He loves His children. It's so good to know that the Lord fought for Israel no, it's not necessarily a one-to-one that He's going to fight for us. But He does fight for His children. We know that. If we cling to Him in the middle of our uh, foolishness, if we cling to Him in the middle of our brokenness, the middle of our loneliness, the middle of our hurt, He's already fought for us in Jesus, hasn't He? And it's beautiful to know that we can lean on Jesus and cling to Him when we feel so alone and so lost. Uh, it is good to know that the, the community of Christ is there for sure. But it's good to know that immediately we can go to Him and He's there for us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for being with us in the struggles that we face. When we are at our weakest often, maybe we've not been through a physical weakness of 40 days of fasting, but we get weak, we get really weak sometimes by things that we've done to ourselves, sometimes the way that the world has beaten us down. But we get to a place where we are definitely weak. And in those moments, Lord, the tempter comes to us and whispers and calls us to satisfy ourselves. To set up idols of self rather than follow You. Lord, this week in those moments, would You be with us? And would You be with us and give us the power to smash those idols? Would You give us the power 
to respond to the Spirit who is whispering Jesus' name in our ear rather than the voice of the tempter who might come across with a shout instead of a, a whisper. Lord, help us. Be with us by Your Spirit. Change us, Father, for Your sake, for Your name. That the glory of Your throne room might resonate to the farthest quark and quanta of this universe. Holy Spirit, thank You for being there for us. Thank You for being there with us. Be with us. Be over our household. Be with our friends. Be with our neighbors. Be on our lips that we would speak words of life to those around us. Be with our countenance that people would see us and know that we are different not because of some gusto that we've ginned up within ourselves, but because of You. Be with us this week, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.